Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, my name is Sabina Brennan. You are very welcome to this eye-opening episode of Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. I've always been fascinated by how our brains work and how they shape the choices we make and the actions that we take. In this episode, myself and fellow neuroscientist Pragya Agarwal use brain science to unpick unconscious bias. In her book, Sway, The Science of Unconscious Bias, Pragya puts a multitude of human biases under the microscope. I am so excited to bring this episode to you because I firmly believe that when we understand how unconscious bias works in our brains, we are better equipped to use our thinking brain to override our initial bias with conscious, thoughtful, unbiased behaviour. None of us are immune to bias and no aspect of our lives are free from bias. Be prepared to learn some fascinating stuff about the human brain and bias. Fragya, thank you so much for joining me. I am so excited to talk to you in this episode of Superbrain. Normally, actually, I don't talk to neuroscientists. I tend to talk to people from lots of different backgrounds about thriving and surviving in life. But ah, oh, your book is just so interesting and relevant. And I posted um, on Twitter when I was reading it that, oh, it brought me back to the joy of when I started studying psychology. It's called Sway and it is about unconscious bias which, you know, sounds like such a technical term and a lot of people are getting Mm -hmm. to know this term in, you know, current context, which is good. But essentially, it really is just about being human and how we operate. And I think what's great about your book is that if we understand our biases, then we have some hope of not acting on those biases, particularly where those biases can cause negative consequences for people. Before we start talking about those things, I'd love to learn a little bit about you and, you know, what brought you to neuroscience and data science. And one thing um, I read in your book, I always like to read the acknowledgements when someone writes a book, because I think it gives you great insight into that process of writing a book, because, you know, maybe it's one person's name on the end of it, but it can't be done without lots of other people. And I'm not just talking about publishers, I'm talking about long suffering husbands and children and all sorts. But one line actually jumped out at me. And um, that was from your parents. You, You thanked them because you said, you taught me generosity and compassion and to never judge a book by its cover. Is that one of the reasons you've been drawn into this field of unconscious bias? Because essentially, that's kind of about judging books by their cover. Oh, gosh, thank you so much for having me here, Sabina. It's been it's wonderful. And thank you for reading my book. And uh, yeah, I mean, yes, I love reading acknowledgements as well. I always gravitate towards them. There's so such a wonderful insight into the author and the book and and the support cast, as you would say. Yeah, I owe a lot to my parents, I think. Um, and I think they were really the first ones, especially my mother, who still embodies that spirit of generosity towards other people and for giving them a chance for taking risks for giving people the benefit of doubt and when I was growing up I think I was really strong-minded I was completely polar opposite to my mother I made very quick decisions and judgments about people and I always thought that that reflected in some way her weakness of spirit because she didn't make very strong decisions. So in my kind of stubborn teenage phase, that's what I thought. But as I've grown older, I've realized how much strength there is in that. And 
And that is something that I think has been a huge learning thing for me as I've grown older as well myself and become a mother. Um, but yes, I think bias, unconscious bias is something that is truly about understanding how we behave and why we behave and how we judge people and how we assess situations and how our own learning through life can also reflect in our the way we judge people and that that we make decisions about other people and situations as well. And I think for me, the key message is that if we are learning this through our lives, then we can unlearn some of these negative biases and stereotypes as well. I think that's something, a very important message I wanted to bring across through the book as well. Yeah, and I think it does come across. And and that kind of brings me nicely to something that you talk about sort of early on in the book, but also something that we talk about a lot in life, and that's instinct and gut instinct. And um, I was on a panel, gosh, maybe probably nine months ago, you know, a year ago, maybe. And I gave a talk and then there was a panel Mm -hmm. discussion afterwards. And, you know, the audience interacted and asked various questions. And one of the other people on the panel was kind of one of those, how would you put it, like a life coach, no neuroscience or psychology background or anything like that. Just somebody who focused on positivity and telling people what how to be positive about life, which is good. You don't necessarily have to have a qualification for that. I just like to understand why that works and what's happening in our brain to make that work. But someone asked her a question and she responded by saying, always trust your gut. Your gut instinct is never wrong. And I'm sitting there going, okay, how can I contradict this politely (laughs) without sounding like a terrible individual? But perhaps you might talk a little bit about what our instinct is and why it isn't something that we should necessarily trust. Yeah, and I think it links this links back to what I said about my mother about never judging a book by its cover because I think we often so often make these first instinctive decisions and judgments about other people or just in situations as well. And yes, we hear this quite a lot that in business, for instance, there's been a lot of talk recently about how business leaders have to be very instinctive and we need, need to follow our instincts in business decisions. And um, and I think what I say in the book is that there has to be a place for both about instinctive decisions, but we have to understand what happens when we make these instinctive decisions. So if we haven't done the learning about or reflecting on our biases or stereotypes or these templates that we carry, then what happens is that we are basically when we are falling back on our instinct is that we are not giving the information enough time to be rationalized in our brain. So if, for instance, I talk about the dual processing theory that there's a system one processing and there's a system two processing and in the system one processing, because there's so much information coming at us, we can't process all the bits of information on a rational, logical way. So we are mostly processing a lot of that information on very superficial level in a very quick manner, often when we are distracted or tired or hurried, in a hurry. And when that happens, we are doing kind of a visual matching game. We are matching this information coming in with the existing templates that in our brain. And these existing templates are these experiences and memories that we have formed these stereotypes. And so what happens is these stereotypes that we have maintained in our brain can become activated and we're more likely to fall back on these stereotypes and biases that we have. But when we give that information time to be processed in a more rational manner in kind of a system two processing, we have time to send it to our cortex and prefrontal cortex where we can apply rules, where we can weigh up different options. And then we can minimize the impact of these stereotypes or previously held biases in our brain um, or, or these experiences. So I think there are certain things, opportunities or situations where we have to follow on our instinct, but we have to understand that when we are making important decisions, we have to give time to these decisions as well. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I talk about it a lot in the context of stress, uh, you know, our stress response. And yes, instinctive, immediate responses can save our lives. Um, And also I talk about it in the context of resources. You know, we have limited cognitive resources. And so your brain is constantly looking for patterns. It wants the easiest route to a decision or to the next action. So it's going to refer back to your previous patterns of behavior, your habits, your stereotypes 
stereotypes, whatever they are, in a very immediate response. And so I will talk about, you know, your fast response and then your slower response. And we absolutely need both of them because the second slower response allows us not only just to evaluate our past experience and our, you know, our habits, we can question, well, why am I responding that way? And we can bring in additional information that can enrich our response and allow us, as you say, to behave more rationally. You know, people say we're rational creatures. We're not. First of all, we're instinctive. And then we rationalize our behavior, often in hindsight. So I think what we need to do is kind of pull back, allow that time to rationalize our behavior before we make the decision, if we have that time. And I think if if a decision um is important, well, then it deserves time to act on it. And I think another thing you talk about, you know, a lot of people think of bias just in terms of gender bias and, you know, racism and those issues, but we have biases right across the board. And one of them that you talk about is my side bias, where where we really are more likely to pay attention to things that already confirm what we know and things about us. And that goes, what scares me in some regard is that those things transcend just us and and they can happen in situations like in medicine and medical decisions, because I think people don't see that. They assume that scientists and doctors, et cetera, are kind of above and beyond that. But as I say to people, people often say to me, you know, oh, you give great advice about brain health, blah, blah, blah. Your brain must be great. Well, you know what? I'm human first. (laughs) I'm human before I'm a psychologist. I'm human before I'm um, a neuroscientist. And doctors are human before they are a medical practitioner practitioner and they're at the mercy of the same biases that you and I are. Yeah, absolutely. So much of what you say is absolutely spot on. And and I think um, that's one thing why I also wanted to write the book is that there was, I feel like there were so misconceptions about unconscious bias, what cognitive or implicit or unconscious bias is. And it, it can be just become like a buzzword. And I really wanted to bring across that this is how we function. These cognitive shortcuts, as you say, are to reduce cognitive load and to minimize the load that we have to make decisions and so um, even when we procrastinate that's kind of a like a cognitive shortcut or a cognitive bias where we are prioritizing the present rather than the future or the I was going to ask you that why I procrastinate and actually why, since you brought it up I think the listeners would love to hear a little bit more about that because I think everybody procrastinates and we don't understand why we do it so it'll be lovely you explained very well in your book and listeners obviously we'd be just touching on some of the stuff. Pragya goes into much more detail on on each of these things that I will touch on, but it'd be lovely to hear a little bit more about why I procrastinate. (laughs) So um, actually, when I was writing the book, and I procrastinate quite a lot as well. Yeah. And it's it's like this, you leave it till the 12th hour or the 13th. My dad used to say, you leave it till the 13th hour and then you have to do it when it's dead. And then you really optimize your performance because you're so uh, under pressure. And so I think... I don't know if people have, um, your audience might have seen this fantastic TED talk about procrastination. It's a really excellent TED talk about this person who's talking about procrastination, about this monkey who sits on his shoulder telling him to not do things. And I was watching that quite a lot while I was writing my book, which is another form of procrastination. Yes. (laughs) But I think it's, again, as I say, it's a status quo bias. So we trust what we have right now and the status that we have, the status quo that we have in the present. So for us, it's easier to do that than to think about the future, about if we did this task, what would happen? And so we are prioritizing our present comfort or our present uh, condition or you're, you're lessening the stress. Again, it's about minimizing the cognitive load. And that is a natural fallback position. That's a natural tendency to do that. Um, and it takes effort. It takes active engagement to be able to counter that. And I think that's why it, it's so difficult to overcome that sometimes people. Yeah, it, it is. and I But I think it's kind of good to know that most people experience it. Sometimes I maybe try to rationalize it as well, that when you touched on it there, that when I then have to do it at the 11th hour or the 13th hour, that somehow all these resources come together. Now, I don't think that there's any particular theory behind that, but I do think it could be related to the fact that, you know, if you have a challenge, something that you have to deal with, if you give that information to your brain and then you carry on doing those procrastinating things, 
things like watching another episode of a Netflix series or even sometimes doing tasks that aren't essential, you know, like cleaning the house rather than writing another chapter of the book, which I sometimes did. I think in some ways as well, there can be some benefits in that actually what you're doing is just the information is in there and it's it's marinating in your brain and, you know, the work, the, there is work happening uh, while you're procrastinating. I mean, I think the trick is, though, that you actually ultimately have to show up and do the yeah, task. And I think that's very true for writing, especially. I think I've realized, especially when we were in, under lockdown and there is so much pressure and I had another book deadline and there was very few hours that I could really work because of the stress and the anxiety, but also the childcare and other pressure of being yeah. there. But I knew that all this time when you're not writing, you're still kind of mulling it over. You're still yeah. dealing with that information in some way. And sometimes you need that time to make those connections and those connections come yeah. together in between disparate concepts that you might not even have realized if you're rushing through things. So I th- yeah, yeah. And I had the exact same experience because my next book, uh, my deadline was the 14th of April, which was, yeah. you know, and I had a pretty short deadline too. You know, the book was commissioned very kind of close to that. And there was periods at the start where I just couldn't write. I, I just, there was nothing. Um, and like that, I had to kind of do that and trust. And so what I did as well, probably similar to you, I kind of sketched out the science across chapters and the things that I wanted to say. So I got on with less challenging tasks that still allowed me to make progress and put information into my brain. And then as I got more used to lockdown and, and you know, we certain, not that normality occurred, but we adapted to the situation. Then I was able to come back and and actually fill it out and write, you know, like a writer. But I think if I had stopped completely, I wouldn't have been able to do it. You still have to let, you know, put information in as well. So we we talk a great deal about stereotypes and we tend to see them, you know, in the negative. But what's really interesting in your book, you talk at length about positive stereotypes. And by that, I suppose you mean mean things like maybe, you know, when people say Asians are good at maths or, you know, something like that. And What's rather interesting is you talk about how detrimental those positive stereotypes can be. I'd love you to talk a, a, a bit more about that because I found it really fascinating. In oh, the book. thank you. Yes, I, I find that fascinating as well because I think it, there is a tendency to counter sometimes the negative stereotypes that people have with these positive stereotypes. And it's assumed that these positive stereotypes make up for these negative ones. So stereotypes are generalized assumptions. As I mentioned in the book, they are a generalized quality or an attribute that's assigned to a particular group. And so by transference, they're assigned to the person who's perceived to be a member of that group. So in terms of a benevolent stereotype or a positive stereotype could be what is called a women are wonderful effect, for instance. So it's often said women are very nurturing and they're very caring and they are very kind and all these kind of attributes are associated to them. And we've recently seen that when we were hearing about leadership styles, for instance, and they're saying, oh, the countries that have women leaders, they've got a very more kind and empathetic style of leadership. And I find that problematic because, again, I think we are assigning some kind of masculine and feminine qualities to people, very specific, falling back into these binary things. But when it happens, women are more likely to be pushed into a box, into a niche, say that this is the qualities that you're supposed to conform to because you're a woman. And that is when a double bind bias comes into it. So there are different forms of double bind bias. One example could be if people are going for leadership, for instance, we don't see that many women leaders in in boardrooms or we we talk about how there are not that many women of color, for instance, but also especially women not in leadership positions. And so Leadership, it is assumed in certain corporate cultures that there is a certain kind of leader or there are some kinds of leadership qualities. And women are not seen as authoritative or aggressive or dynamic because they're kind and nurturing and caring. And so they don't have the masculine properties. And so they're not promoted to, as leaders. But then when some women want to break out of that mold and conform more to what is perceived as masculine qualities and break out of these Again, these kind of stereotypes that are assigned to women or these feminine characteristics, they're, they're penalized for it because they're seen as kind of going against the grain or they're not conforming to being what a woman is or what womanhood should be like. And that's often seen as, as kind of not being a team player or, or things like that. And again, they're penalized. So this is kind of a double bind bias they might face. Another example is quickly is about black men who are often 
we know that black men are considered more aggressive. We know from with George Floyd's murder that happened in America, a lot of research done in about black men are seen as more aggressive. They're associated more with criminality. But they are also, there's research to show that black men are seen as more athletic and they, they're better athletes, for instance. But when they're seen as that better athletes, there is an assumption of strength associated with it. So when an assumption of strength is associated with it, that leads on to a direct consequence that they're aggressive and, and they can be a threat to somebody as well. So again, that's kind of leading to a negative toxic stereotype as well. So I think anytime these kind of positive or ne- negative stereotypes happen, they are ultimately pushing people into a box or ultimately assigning a generalized assumption to it, which means that people are dehumanized. They are not seen as individuals and they're seen only as a part of a group. And it could also, I think, impact on your sense of self and, and, and where you fit, that if you're not an athletic black male, well, then am I really part of my own group, you know, which can actually in a way maybe lead to people feeling more alienated. I'm interested going back again as well to leadership roles and to this double blind bias. Um, And as you said, and I have to blame my own discipline, psychological research was all initially done on males. And so when you're looking at various attributes like ones that you've mentioned there, aggressiveness, um, nurturing, leadership, all those qualities, when the initial research was done and psychology theories were born, let's say, all the research was done on males. And so what happened then was the male became the norm behavior. So then if you looked at females, if they were more or less, it was always relative to the male rather than to the human condition. So really what should have happened was research is done on humans and we look at the degree of diversity across human beings and then we see maybe what is average and who fall into into various tales. And what you will find, going back to that example of, I think you have an example in the book of, um, you know, around being good at maths or that you were a girl and you weren't good at maths or kind of something like that. And basically... There's kind of a confusion, I think, with people that when research shows something to the effect of men are better at spatial navigation, i.e. men can park cars better than women, it implies that women can't park cars. But that's a misunderstanding of the statistical nature of something like that. If you look at any difference between males and females when it comes to intellect or cognitive function, while some differences are there, the effect size is very small. So without getting too technical, what that means is that on average, men may be better than parking cars, but there will be men who are much worse at parking cars than some women and vice versa. And the same applies to women are supposed to be better at language and all those kind of things. It just means that on average, when you take them as a group, there is a difference, but actually really it's not that great of a difference because there's plenty of women who are good at spatial navigation and plenty of men who are good at language. But these misconceptions arise because people talk about averages and then they actually become ingrained in people's, um, not only their um, stereotyping of other people, but almost their self-stereotyping. But it's kind of fascinating and it's, it's lovely to tease out some of those things and There's some interesting things that you mentioned around that moving on from the black male athletic individual. But there's some things that actually really made me think, like you said, you looked and why are there no female Asian soccer players? And part of that, I think as well, when it comes to things with women is, I mean, this applies across the board, but particularly with women, in that because there aren't many female leaders or role models where we can see there, there's no sample to show us that it is possible for a female to be like that. Um, and I think there's a lot of issues around that. And you talk about uh, things like the hypersexualization. Would, would you talk a little bit about that in terms of women? Because that's interesting because we, we will know as females that we're often sexualized, which means in a way we're kind of objectified, you know. Um, but the hypersexualization is something slightly different. Yeah, so... Um, 
So in terms of hypersexualization, what I talk about is that, yes, there's research to show that women are objectified, women are seen as parts rather than the whole. There was research that in neuroscience research in that as well, in terms of brain, um, how women are perceived. Um, But in terms of hypersexualization is that certain groups of women, certain ethnicity of women, because of their skin color, they are considered more promiscuous or maybe more, more sexualized, maybe seen more as a sexual and entity rather than anything else and that's a very strong stereotype that's associated often with black women and recently I wrote a piece about Brianna Taylor and how um, we are not hearing that much about black women being uh, considered criminals or what what's happening in the U.S. with them especially is because they're often considered um, promiscuous. One of the things as well I think that you had brought up that I found really interesting was um, one of the far white supremacists, you know, saying that Asian girls kind of have something cute yeah, going on. Exactly. <laughs> Do you know? Yeah, the they're often seen this kind of geisha uh, complex, isn't it? We, we yes. hear about Japanese women, they're seen in more subservient roles and, and they are seen as meek and quiet. And so anybody who's, especially I think it happens a lot with women of color and South Asian Asian women, um, they're perceived as meek and docile. And so if they express any opinions, they are then penalized for it or they are seen as threatening. And that is something that I face often as well. So if, if, if I express an opinion, even just a general opinion, I'm often called like angry or hysterical because I'm stepping outside the norm or the kind of stereotype that's associated with the group that I belong to. And in that way, I think these sexualized properties that's assigned with, for instance, I talk about Asian men, they're often seen as these kind of desexualized creatures as well. And that really affects how dating happens as well. So in, the, in terms of dating, African-American men are perceived to be more sexually aggressive or better sexual partners or Asian men are not considered like that as well. So I think that affects so many of these decisions. And you talked about ingrained these kind of stereotypes as well. And that is also related to stereotype threat that people have. So when you know that you're going to be stereotyped in a domain, you're more anxious and stressed about it. Often you can internalize it. So you try and conform to that stereotype because you feel like that's the only way you want to fit in. Often you might be so anxious if you step into a domain where you think you're going to be stereotyped, like we talk about women in STEM. If they they think they're going to be stereotyped, you already have this extra cognitive load that you're carrying, which affects your performance. And I think that happens in all the different domains. This, this thing. Oh, it, it happens. There's tons of research around that. You know, even you know, in 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 my area where I look at aging and memory performance, if people are primed, if you literally just say to uh, you know a bunch of older adults going in to do a memory test, if somebody literally just primes them with a comment that says you know memory declines with age, and then another group go in and they haven't been primed, the group that we're told memory declines with age perform more poorly on memory tests. So these aren't innocuous statements. And I, and I thought there was another really interesting study that you describe in your book. And I certainly would have experienced it myself in academia and often question myself when I came away from these situations. And so basically, this study that you talk about, it shows that when men in academia speak about themselves or their work, whatever they're the expert in, they are energized by it. Um, whether they talk to men or women about it. When women speak to other women about their work, they feel competent. However, when women speak to men about their work, they feel less competent than they actually are, even though if they are on the exact same level as the male that they are speaking to. And I can certainly um, attest to falling victim to that among certain male colleagues to the extent that I might find myself tripping over my words and not expressing myself in the same confident, eloquent way. And I would come away and I would know, I would go, why did I? And I'd love to tease that apart more. We don't, I don't think science has given us the answer to that yet, but I don't know whether there's a, some sort of inherent aggression underneath it, or it feels to me like there's some message that they have some skill that can turn me into a, <laughs> you know, into something I'm not, you know, somebody that feels undermined, I guess is the best way. But it's very, Yeah, but I think there's so many factors to it that we have to think about. And we have to consider 
how this happens from childhood, uh, how boys and girls are treated, how the sense of entitlement or privilege sometimes um, boy can have, which girls might not have. So it's a societal thing as well. And that, again, we're talking mm-hmm. about internalizing that message. And so if children grow up in a very gendered way or they see that all around them, they see this is how women are supposed to behave or this is how men behave or they see men as being more accomplished, um, for instance, because it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? Because if men are seen more, men are quoted more, men are more visible, then we start believing the message that men are no more or no better. And then women, although they might know in academia that we we know what we know, that message is still at the back. You're fighting that stereotype threat all the time. So that heightened stress and heightened anxiety that you're carrying affects how you communicate here and yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it it interferes with your cognitive functioning and your ability to attend and, and focus on what you're saying because you have this extra activity going on in your brain. Um, And I I say for me, I suppose, because I went to university late in life, there's that sense that, uh, oh, they have more experience perhaps than me or or whatever. So you've that added thing. And then on top of that, as a female, particularly, we have less female role models, full stop. But then in the media, the older you get as a woman, the more invisible you become. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm delighted to see that you write about ageism in your book. I am a passionate advocate against ageism. I find that if I ever call somebody out on ageism, uh, the response I get shocks me time and time again. People do not believe that they are ageist. They do not believe that ageism exists. They think that you're being ridiculous or virtue signaling. It's It, it just shows you how ingrained and accepted ageism is in society that people aren't ready yet to accept that about themselves. But ageism is is a very, very real thing that impacts in very, very real ways, especially when research shows that governments and healthcare providers are the most ageist organizations that exist. And so that impacts on the kind of healthcare that we'll get and the kind of government policies that will be implemented. We've seen it recently with COVID, how it was seen okay to tell people over the age of 70, you have to lock yourself away in cocoon. And and everybody said, well, that's brilliant. That's a great idea. You know, and yes, it made absolutely sense in terms of transmission of a disease and protecting people. But imprisoning people in their own homes had lots of detrimental health effects, other effects, where my argument is, if you said anybody between the ages of 20 and 24 has to remain locked in their own home for the next 12 weeks, there would have been uproar. People would have said, oh, no, you can't. You have to give them access to this and to this and to this and to this. And so that's the difference. Yes, we needed to cocoon a vulnerable group of the population, but we needed to do it in a way that acknowledged their human needs and set up situations so that they could go outside shopping safely, that they could go out and walk. And that's inherently ageist. Absolutely. Our society is very ageist. And I think the conversation around ageism hasn't been normalized just yet. So we are just coming to a point where we're starting to talk about racism. And yes, we talk about sexism more openly now and we acknowledge those cases, but ageism is something is kind of a hidden bias still and that people don't want to talk about it or acknowledge it much like looks or height or other kinds of biases that also exist or accents for these 
we don't talk that much about it. But yeah, absolutely. And again, there's an intersectional effect because older women are penalized in different ways than older men. So, so just to explain, when you say an intersectional effect, what you actually mean is where a couple of different biases come together. So you may have either a doubling of the effect or even an exponential impact of the, the bias. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when we talk about biases, it's really important to talk about how different your membership to different categories or different groups can cause you to f- face more bias just because like maybe you are a woman and an older woman or for instance if you have a certain accent and you're a woman or a black woman might face different biases compared to black men or women of color or generally so i think older women for instance because this age and gender is intersecting face a more heightened there's a societal perception about after a certain age women are not seen as as anything basically and older men still still go out and be fathers yeah. or or and be considered attractive exactly. and you know they've silver yeah. fox with your gray hair and you know whereas women you, every shop you walk into there's advertisements how not to look like me yeah. <laughs> you know because I've gotten older and what I think is hysterical about that is and also very revealing about the human condition is that Pretty much everyone, you know, if you're lucky, if you don't die prematurely, is going to be a victim to this bias. So it is in everybody's interest to address this bias at a societal level, yet people aren't interested in. And again, I think that's related to what you were talking about when we were talking about procrastination. It's the present bias. So 24-year-olds are really only concerned about what is affecting 24-year-olds. Yes, they might be concerned about climate change or whatever, those things, but they're also related to what group you identify with, your politics and the things that you feel passionate about. Um, they're related to that. But when it comes to age, yes, there does seem to be this failure to and, and it's from an othering of older people. It is about dehumanizing them and talking about them in the third party as if yeah. they're something completely different from the rest of It's kind of, of infantilizing older people as well as they, they so they, because our society functions like this, this is the media that the messages that we get, the kind of representation yeah. we see, the kind of images we see, the language that's used around older people, they're seen as a burden, they're, they're supposed to yeah. dress a certain way, we talk about if an older, slightly older women dress a certain way or be with a younger man, the kind of language that's used is very negative. Mutton, mutton yeah, dressed exactly. as lamb. I even say it myself if I wear yeah. something and I'll say, am I mutton? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there have been you know? lots of examples Dreadful. like that. And that's a very peculiar kind of bias because as you say, the same group, we are biased against ourselves in a way, in our older self. Mm. That's why yeah. we are so reluctant to get older. People don't want to age. People are see it as a negative thing that if we age. And that's definitely this research has shown and I talk about it in the book about how, how healthcare is biased against it and how healthcare yeah. professionals are biased against older people as well. And definitely we saw how they were treated and their loneliness and mental health and how care homes, how that's happened in, during the pandemic. Yeah. It's really highlighted some of it. And I, I don't know what's going to happen in terms of how it's shown the structural inequalities that exist in our society, this pandemic or this lockdown. But I hope really yeah, I, that something happens, a momentum has happened. I don't know, but it has really highlighted the structural inequality. Yeah, it has. And I, I was a guest on a podcast in the US and they were asking me actually what was one positive that I would take away from the pandemic. And lots of people had been saying things like, oh, exercising more or, you know, you know, balance in life or spending more time with my children. And I was saying, well, I hope that the takeaway is that we see the yeah. problem with um, care homes and with just warehousing our older people. And um, it's an age apartheid as far as I'm concerned. And, and I really do think of care homes as almost like leper colonies of modern time. You know, can you imagine taking any other group of society and saying, here's where you go now and uh, this is better for you and and you're not allowed to make any decisions on this. And I personally really don't know anybody who dreams of living in a nursing home. So people are being forced to end their days in in a way that they don't want. I want to move on before we run out of time um, that you mentioned some really other interesting biases 
biases. So, and, and some of them are of personal interest to me too. And I, I thought it would be nice to talk about them. So you talk about height bias and you specifically talk about uh, Trump being guilty of height bias. Now we see Trump being guilty of loads of things and lots of biases. Um, but actually this was the first time that I had heard of him being guilty of height bias. And I'm very interested because as a female who is barely kind of touches five foot two. <laughs> I'm very conscious of height. Yeah, I mean, it is such a deeply ingrained bias in our society because height is seen as something that's associated with status and position. So the taller you are, you seen as more authority for some reason. And I faced that growing up because I am height-wise challenged. Um, but I never thought about it as kind of a challenge or a limitation. It's only when people said to me, if only she was taller and I would wonder why why would what would I do if I was a little bit taller you know I mean okay, I can read some of the cupboards well, think- there which I have to climb but- <laughs> well that's true that's true I can't read I can't reach some of the cupboards but I also I, I, I would have a joke when I gain weight yeah. that it's just that I'm yeah, not tall exactly. enough for my weight exactly. <laughs> and I do it I do envy women who are taller and can eat yeah, more I mean it just shows but then you come here and I think it's the kind of norm Again, with the society, I think in the European society, since I moved to the UK, there is a diff- different kind of norm, I suppose, the average uh, of what the yeah. height is. And recently I posted an image on Twitter, which I don't know where it came from, but it it again kind of showed this average height of different women from different countries. But it also kind of, <gasps> oh, yeah, so and I, it, that was really fascinating because it had kind of exaggerated the proportions and that was a very stark example of how data can be biased, yes. But it was absolutely brilliant. And what I'll do is um, I'll share that image. I'll retweet your image from social media. But essentially what it did was it showed the height of women, African, um, yeah. European, what, whatever. I think it actually even yes. went countries, you know, British women, American women, whatever. And then it had Asian women, Indian I women. believe. But the scale was, there was a difference of about five or six yeah. inches in the scale. <laughs> but the way it worked was and I think I was smaller than all of them because I think five for two was kind of the smallest but the Asian one the scale was so small that it actually looked like a mini me (laughs) as opposed to another adult human and that was all about the scale and that's true too when you're taking in statistics and information you got to look at how it's presented and 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 I think that's become even more relevant and I can I'm still seeing this graph of President Trump waving the graph uh, in a recent interview where (laughs) And it was a very basic uh, block graph. And if I can recall correctly, he was talking about the number of deaths in proportion to the number of cases. And the interviewer was trying to say to him, yes, but really, you know, it's the number of deaths in proportion to your population that counts. And he just keeps waving this graph and say, you can't do that. It's the number of deaths in proportion to the number of people we've tested. And you kind of go, no. No, I mean, that was uh, that was surreal. I think that's when he said, or America oh. is doing better than the world <laughs> and I was thinking yeah. what you can't read and so yes data doesn't lie people say but it does and so I think that's again about interpretation and how it can be skewed it, and it can yeah. be misrepresented in the way to bias yes. or sway you your decisions and the information yes. that's presented to you and that's why I think knowledge is yeah. power and and I think that you know the more that people can be empowered. You you know, I mean, I would rather see kids in early school being taught how to critically interpret information that they are bombarded with. That would be much more valuable than than studying, you know, 46 poems or all of the plays of Shakespeare. Whilst they have value, I think our educational system needs to start moving away from ethnocentrism, where when we're educated in school and through our family, we're educated through a lens that is very specific to our own cultural values, morals, etc., to the extent that it makes us believe that all of our cultural practices and morals are the correct yeah. ones and that everybody else's is incorrect, wrong, amoral, etc. And the world will never change unless we actually take that 
out and actually educate kids. That's about very that. true. And I th- I wrote an article for iPaper or iNews about how we can decolonize the curriculum for our children, especially when people were homeschooling. And I think creative thinking and critical thinking is a very very important skill we need to give our children, especially when they are bombarded with information from everywhere on social media. And this is how fake news spreads as well because we don't yeah. validate that information. We don't critically think about it. We fall back into our echo chambers. We fall back into our confirmation biases of believing people who are part of a group and tribe. And that's why children need to really know that. And I think that's also really important to diversify their reading and diversify what they read and hear and talk about. And actually related to that, I have a book coming in October, which is called Wish We Knew What to Say, Talking with Children About Race and from the ages of 2 to 12, because I think it's really important that these strong sense of racial identities are built in children and and the kind of strong sense of association with your own kind of groups and your strong identity, you still understand that your perspective is not the only perspective, that there are different diverse views and diverse experiences and diverse stories in the world. I think that's really important a message to give to. I do too. Yeah, because very early on we learn and when we're very, very young infants, you know, our brain is developing and somewhat impressionable and, you know, from very young ages we we do start to discern in groups and out groups and without going into too much detail on it and, and you can read about this in the book and it's generally what's spoken about, I suppose, but I kind of wanted to pull out some of the more nuanced angles. But a lot of our biases, they evolved, number one, because as we spoke about already, because they relieve cognitive load and they also allow us to behave in a way that may save us, save our lives, uh, contribute to survival, you know, in the moment. Um, But for the most part, they have evolved because they are adaptive. You know, they have allowed us to progress. And part of them are, you know, inherent, the in-group, the fundamental fundamental in-group, out-group biases. If you go back in evolutionary terms, they saved very, very important purposes. It allowed us on the basis of what we would call in psychology primitives, um, and I'm not talking about primitive races, which is derogatory in and of itself. I'm talking about primitives being that from a distance, you can determine whether somebody is tall or small or you know wide or dark-skinned or white-skinned. So that's a primitive way of recognizing someone. And it, it serves a purpose. It's like a heuristic. It's like a shorthand. And that allows us as members of a tribe or an in-group to see somebody from a distance and determine whether they're friend or foe. Uh, and so that serves a purpose. But we do have that rational capacity now. We don't need that in the same way that we did in the past. And so we have the capacity to override that instinctive or learned bias. Some of them are, um, I suppose we could say some of them are instinctive, an awful lot of them are learned through culture, etc. But the point of the matter is we don't have to act on them. Uh, And it's okay to put your hand up. That's what I would like to say to people. It's really okay to put your hand up and say, I have inherent biases. You know, I have this misconception about you or I have a tendency towards having prejudicial or stereotypical thoughts about you. But thankfully, I can stop myself acting on those. Um, and I think that's important because I read an article somebody wrote in quite a reputable newspaper to say this unconscious bias is a load of rubbish. People are just racist and they need to get their act together. But that's denying the human condition. We have unconscious bias and we have to work to overcome it. Um, I really don't see the value of denying that. You mentioned the way that Trump that has been biased in terms of height is by only employing people who are over a certain height, uh, which is incredibly interesting. Um, And I hadn't heard of that before. He also has that intimidating, because he's so extra tall himself, you know, he has that intimidating height. Um, One thing that I'm interested in, again, is in terms of, I guess, the double blind bias. So we've had Biden announce his VP and very exciting in terms that she's female and of her ethnic origins, very much a first in many respects. But uh, what do you think is in store for her from the media? (laughs) Yes, I mean, yes, it is exciting in terms of we were talking about role models and representation. From that perspective, I think 
it's huge to see a woman and an African Indian woman being there out there and talking openly about being our parents being immigrants because immigrants are seen such as as a negative stereotype and category in US but also in the UK but I talk in the book about petticoat politician uh, the section and how media sexism perpetuates the sexism that exists in the society but also it kind of reinforces it so women politicians are often there's a lot some research to show and i've looked at some analysis about how hillary clinton was talked about the words that were used for her it's like we were talking about earlier you know she was shrill and argumentative and whereas the language that would be used for a male who would Absolutely be nothing. perhaps much more aggressive and actually again didn't that happen during um one of the debates hillary's talking and trump yeah. just comes up and stands behind her as this hugely tall figure now that is something that's a very yeah. threatening move for for any of us. That's why if we go into a restaurant, we will be drawn to a seat where our back can wall. be against a, yeah. a wall because it's an inherent protective act because if someone comes from behind us, we're disadvantaged. So he was he was using, you know, multiple <laughs> threats. And he's already behaviors. talked about Harris and called her rude and disrespectful and mean and nasty women and mad women. Yeah, he had, had the audacity to call yes, her a liar. And all these terms <laughs> that are used to denigrate women's achievement and to kind of yeah. either infantilize them or kind of create them as kind of hysterical women who yes. can't control their emotions. Always emotions are weaponized against women. So that's something that yes. always happens with women politicians. Yeah, and, and, and it's one word that I just hate that is often applied and was certainly even applied to me as a child or if ever I was frustrated and lot, and, and that is that word hysterical. And I mean, it comes from history. It, it comes from womb. Hysteria. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And hysteria and the word of the womb. It's just so nasty. Obviously, your book deals directly with racism and it is of huge interest, you know, in anybody who is interested in affecting change, you know, around Black Lives Matter, those horrific issues that come to the fore. And there's plenty in the book to read around that. One piece in that that I found interesting was something that you have referred to as colorism. Mm -hmm. That interested me because it's almost like another bias or racism within Communities. Yes. Um, basically, it was introduced by the activist Alice Walker, who said, who defined colorism as why it is beautiful. So this notion that exists within certain African, South Asian, Southeast Asian communities is that that fair skin is better somehow. There's this higher superior kind of status associated um, with with fair being fair skinned. And it is associated with a long history of oppression. And that's, again, internalized racism, because when you face colonialism, and I talk about that in the book, about the history of that, that kind of led to people internalizing that to say that, yes, fair skin is beautiful, are more intelligent, for instance, or in some way, or they are more attractive in some ways. And I think that becomes really relevant or pertinent, especially when we're talking about Black Lives Matter, because... I posted about that when it just happened because I said it's not just a black and white issue because we as South Asians, even we are minority ethnic community and we have faced racism in our lives as well. We have to think about how we have enabled blackness, anti-blackness in our communities as well by perpetuating or believing in colorism. So I know that black people, I have black colleagues who've gone to India with me for conferences and stuff and the kind of reaction they've had because of their skin color is quite appalling, you know, and there's a lot of nasty words that are associated with it. And it's not just the Indian communities, as I said, it's Chinese, Japanese, African communities and, and the fairness creams and the fairness industry is a huge global industry. And it's only recently that the biggest brand called Fair and Lovely changed its name to Glow and Lovely after the whole Black Lives Matter thing was happening. So what is Fair and Lovely? I, I... It, it's a cream that all the women, especially young girls growing up, were told to apply so that their skin will become fairer. It's a kind of a fairness cream, basically, and it's a huge right. global industry. Yes. I, I remember being horrified seeing a documentary, actually, um, about young Indian women having various yeah. bleaching yeah. treatments, even, you know, anything to just lighten their skin. And, yeah, I mean, I find that very terrifying, um, very sad, and it's challenging as well. I mean, I grew up in 
what was essentially a monoculture because Ireland yeah. was very much just Irish people. Nobody wanted to come <laughs> here. <laughs> but that has changed hugely. So now we're a very, very multicultural society and it has happened over a very, very short period of time. Um, and sadly, in some cases, racism rears its ugly head. But for the most part, I think a lot of people, um, you know, at least try. They may not be aware of the biases that we have. And as you say, a lot of the research shows, and I remember studying, you know, there was a lot of research being done in the university that I went to around implicit bias and developing tests to measure it, to kind of show people, that I think it is important to recognize that even if we firmly consciously believe that we are not racist, that we consciously try to act in ways that are not racist, chances are that we are still behaving in ways that are racist. There's a lot of work for us to do to kind of make progress. One other bias that I wanted to talk about was beauty <laughs> bias. I had never really heard of that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something, again, the whole model of attractiveness, what is attractive and is, is different according to cultures and societies, of course, although that's becoming more homogenous as, as we are opening up, the information is disseminating more widely. But again, I suppose it's related to in a way of whiteness being a norm. There's a Eurocentric model of beauty that now everybody wants to conform to. So for instance, I gave an example of how the Vogue covers have not had many women of color on it or black women on it. And even if they had, they were lighter skin or they were Photoshopped to make them fairer skin. So to, to right, adapt okay. to a certain model of beauty. So beauty bias is basically related to a halo effect as well. So if person is considered beautiful, it's naturally assumed that they might have other properties or good properties associated with them. They might be intelligent and kind and funny as yeah, well. So as halo beautiful. effect is that if you think associate a positive property with the person, then you see them as having these other good properties and it's naturally they will have other positive properties. And, and, and there is also a horn, a horn effect whereby if you see somebody as unattractive or having one negative attribute, you then apply more other negative attributes to that individual, you know. So halos and horns, you know, they're exactly. everywhere. Exactly. And beauty bias is, is often perpetuated by what we see in media as well, mm. the kind of model of beauty that we see. I was interested as well in what you had to say about accents. Accents and names are instantly we can categorize people. And, you know, we do that, but our brain does that for everything. You know, your brain has to see, it has to try and make sense of the world. And it does that by looking for patterns, looking for shortcuts and accents, names, skin color, etc. They can all serve that purpose and provide that you don't treat somebody negatively or differently as a consequence of that categorization. That's just the human condition. The problem is, is when we kind of act in negative ways on those. But something interesting you said about accents that, because I'm always interested in the purpose of how things evolved. So accents are not universal. They're different across as our languages, etc. So they're not like an inherent in, in instinctive thing. And so you had something interesting to say that accents form in terms of protecting us in a way from disease or from... Again, it kind of links back to this evolutionary notion of in-group and out-group mentality as well. And yes, accents is something that's very societal. So it's, it's stemming from societal perceptions, really, of how this this notion has created, this assumption has created that people who speak in a particular accent are more intelligent. And we see these kind of categories all the time, what we're talking about. We put people into categories. The problem happens if those categorization remains stable, that they don't move. And we then keep defining people in terms of their categories rather than on their individual merits. Yes. Over time, what should happen yeah. again is it's like the rational thinking. You get yeah. more information and more information and you can kind of go, oh, they sound like a very X, Y, Z sort of person. But actually, now that I'm talking to them, they're not or I've misunderstood. So it is about Again, it's that first yeah. impression things, you know, that thing about your, your parents don't judge a book by its cover. It is about engaging your brain and taking in more information and then using that information 
to allow your opinions and decisions about somebody Absolutely. Involved. And again, with many of these biases, there's something that becomes a societal norm. And we keep comparing people to those kind of norms or those kind of definite categories or fixed categories that we already or those properties that we've come to define them by. There's also kind of an affinity bias. So if you hear somebody who's got the same accent as us, we're more likely to like them, trust them. Um, there's also a status bias. So if we assign somebody a status, we are more likely to trust them. And if we think that people of certain accents have higher status in society, then we are more likely to trust them. So there's a transference of these properties as well when these biases come into play. Not We are not just perceiving them purely on the basis of accent, but because that accents represent something in terms of societal perception. Mm-hmm. And, and this is kind of outside your field, but I'm kind of curious. I have a terrible habit that if someone were to stop me on the street and ask me for directions, and for example, if they had a very strong Scottish accent, I would respond with... <laughs> with a bit of a Scottish lilt. Have you read anything about that? I mean, I have my own little theory about what that well, is. Actually, my daughter is very much like that. She used to say I'm an accent chameleon because I can just take on somebody's accent very, very quickly. And and I think it's suppose it's that whole thing about fitting in, trying yeah. to mimic to create affinity and to create association. That has always been my yeah. own theory because my husband would say to me, you're talking like them and I'm going, I can't help it. It's just happening. But I say over and over again when I speak to guests on the show, when I'm researching them, I'm always looking for some affinity. I'm always looking for something that we have in common. And I think perhaps in a way that's a survival, an unconscious sort of survival instinct. It's not mimicking in the sense that we see mimicking as something, you know, bullying. It is a, a sort of an assimilation to sort of say, I'm here with you. Yes, I'll help you. Or, I, But it is funny how these things kind of can just happen. In, um, without deliberation. Oh, yeah. With no, absolutely no deliberation. I, I'd be halfway through the <laughs> sentence and go, oh, my God. Um, but mimicking is, is kind of a term that's used when even people start copying other people's body language. They start, it's like mirror imaging. You, they start doing the same yes. thing, which breaks down the barriers. And I think that's what happens with accents yes. as well. And, and it, you know, I mean, this is a podcast, so you've no visuals, but thankfully we can see each other. And as we speak, you know, I've just smiled. You've just smiled back at me. You know, as we're saying, when I'm talking, you're constantly nodding, which is actually, if I am doing a podcast remotely, I really do like to have those images because I know then that I can continue with what I'm saying because you understand what I'm saying. So they're all part of allowing us to communicate. And I think that brings us on to one of the big problems. um, And that is around social media, because we don't have the human being at the other side. And I think all of these biases are accentuated in social media and people don't even attempt to not be racist or not be angry or whatever, because And you can guarantee that those very same people, actually, if they met you face to face, most probably would be very polite. Um, But the human interaction isn't there. And I think as well, speaking to that whole fake news thing and loss of truth as being, you know, a foundational principle is related to one of these biases, this conformity bias that we want to be with people we like. I think on social media, a lot of people say stuff so that they get more likes, that they become part of a group who also agree and that makes them feel good. But unfortunately, what's happened in terms of truth and news is because we have a tendency to prioritize information that confirms what we already believe and discard other valuable and valid information because it disconfirms that. What's happened is the world has just run away with itself and truth has been the victim. And I think the more we can get the kind of information that's in your book out to people and out to the next generation of people and the current, if we can, to start busting those bubbles 
that people live within. Um, that's the only way we're going to make progress because people are going to continue with their belief because they'll continue to look for information to confirm that. So just to finish, I this podcast is about thriving and surviving in life. And usually I ask my guests to share a piece of information, you know, whether it's from their own life, something that they rely on to thrive or something that has helped them to survive or overcome challenge in life. Uh, so I'm going to kind of put you on <laughs> yeah. the spot on that. Whether there's anything that you would like to say, of course, you can relate it to something in the book, how we can thrive as human beings, you know, by addressing bias, but it's free and entirely up to you. But no, absolutely. From the book, yes. I think when we start reflecting on bias, our privileges, we are more kind and we are more compassionate. And I think that's the only way we can think about how do we leverage a privilege to be a better ally with other people. And when we start doing that, we start forming bridges and seeing common and affinities rather than always looking for differences with other people and putting people into in-group and out-group and seeing these barriers and divisions. But for personally, I think for me, not conforming to other people's expectations of me, I think has been a huge thing for me personally, um, recognizing my body and knowing that the pressure I put on myself to achieve something or to do something while I do that, I also have to stop and celebrate the achievements. And that's something that I'm learning. <laughs> that's a work in progress. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of come up a few times with other guests and females in particular. We don't celebrate the achievements. It's like, oh, I've got here. Oh, no, I need to get up to the <laughs> yeah. next bit. I think that's kind of countering stereotype threat in a way, because you feel like you have to work 10 times harder to prove yourself. It's like constantly proving yourself in a way. And, and I think yeah. that sometimes drives people forward because you're not setting your own target. You're still looking at other people's notions of what success means, I think, sometimes and trying to conform to it. Yeah, no, that's very interesting and something that I'm working on too. <laughs> um, Pragya, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I know that you've been really busy writing lots of books. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I could have talked to you for hours. There's so much in your book. So folks, go out and buy the book if you want to learn more about biases. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much, Sabina, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. I said in the introduction to this episode, none of us are free from bias. Even the way that we research and characterize human behavior is biased. Tune in on Thursday when I lift the lid on gender bias in psychological research. You'll find links to Praya's book in the show notes for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My name is Sabina Brennan. You can read more about my work on superbrain.ie. You can also follow me on Twitter at Sabina underscore Brennan and Instagram at Superbrain Podcast and at Sabina Brennan. If you found this episode fascinating, please share it and subscribe on Acast, Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.